Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. In this episode, we're going to talk about the interrelationship between major investigations and crisis communications. In 2020 and continuing to 2021, the term crisis communication seems almost redundant since we are bombarded every day with information about the pandemic death toll and infection rates, the largest cyber attack in history, the financial crisis, efforts to overturn a presidential election, and an attack on the U.S. Capitol building while Congress was in session. So much of crisis management planning and crisis communications is about thinking through various scenarios that could play out and then formulating a game plan for each. Investigators, outside counsel, litigation consultants, and compliance advisors regularly meet people while they are staring down the barrel of a crisis that is already playing out in the news or is on the verge of doing so. We've all witnessed firsthand how things can go from bad to worse when a company or individual makes public statements hastily without first gathering the facts. Issuing denials, betraying the confidentiality of whistleblowers, obfuscating, appearing tone deaf, or avoiding questions can shift the focus away from the allegations and make the company's refusal to acknowledge or take ownership the issue instead. If handled poorly, crises can cause deep and long-lasting damage to a company's reputation and share value. On the other hand, if handled well, a crisis can become an opportunity for a company's management team to demonstrate their mettle and character to investors, customers, and employees. Crisis communications is a critically important tool in the company's arsenal during a high-profile investigation. So joining me today are two people who have extensive experience with high-profile investigations in which crisis communications have played a critical role. Skadden ARP's partner, Patrick Fitzgerald, and FTI Consulting Senior Managing Director, Rachel Rosenblatt. Prior to joining Skadden in 2012, Mr. Fitzgerald had been the longest-serving U.S. attorney ever in Chicago. There, he led numerous high-profile investigations and prosecutions including the convictions on corruption charges of two successive governors of Illinois, George Ryan and Rod Blagojevich, and the fraud conviction of media figure Conrad Black. He was also appointed as special counsel to lead the investigation of leaks in the Valerie Plame matter and tried the case of United States versus Lewis Scooter Libby. Mr. Fitzgerald was also involved in a number of nationwide initiatives, including the President's Corporate Fraud Task Force, and the Attorney General's Advisory Committee. While an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York from 1988 to 2001, Pat served as lead counsel in the investigation, prosecution, and seven-month trial of United States versus Osama bin Laden et al., in which multiple defendants were charged with and convicted of conspiracy to murder U.S. nationals overseas and the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. He also participated in the nine-month trial of United States versus Omar Abdel Rahman, the prosecution of a conspiracy to attack the United States that involved the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. 
Mr. Fitzgerald served as both the national security coordinator and the crisis management coordinator for the U.S. Attorney's Office, and was also selected to serve on the Attorney General's Critical Incident Response Group to provide legal advice during critical national security events. Rachel Rosenblatt is a Senior Managing Director in the Strategic Communications Segment at FTI Consulting, where she specializes in reputation management, crisis communications, corporate positioning, and communications training. She was recently named one of PR News' top women in PR. Rachel regularly provides counsel to organizations facing issues that bring together corporate reputation, crisis, and public affairs challenges, implementing business and communication strategies on their behalf. Welcome, Pat and Rachel, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Much appreciated. So securities fraud, corruption prosecutions, search warrants, arrests of executives, cyber attacks, and consumer frauds all tend to play out in a very public way. Pat, you're frequently involved in some very high-profile matters, both during your time as a prosecutor and special counsel, and in your representation and investigative leadership on some incredibly high-profile and high-stakes matters. When you're retained in a high-profile investigation, key executives have already made some public comments that are potentially problematic. What are the most important steps to take to align public commentary with things like need to know, legal privilege, and not undermining your own legal strategy? Well, Scott, I think the first thing is that the team, I'm assuming, is aligned with trying to do the right thing on all sorts of levels. And that means both the client and the counsel. And if that's true, that's important. But it's key to understand that even if the team is aligned on the intent to handle things the right way, that's simply not enough. There needs to be message discipline so that any messaging by anyone on the team doesn't get ahead of everyone else or lead to confusion or inconsistency or undermine the strategy. And the second part is that the team needs to be thinking several steps down the road and anticipating further developments, whether good or bad, because no crisis is static. And I think the lawyer in particular needs to be thinking about considerations beyond just the litigation strategy so that, in fact, and in appearance, the client understands that the advice that the lawyer is giving is addressing the whole context. And I think that'll become clearer as we continue the discussion. But I think from the get-go, I always have a sense that clients could be apprehensive that the lawyer is only looking at it through the lens of the litigation strategy. And there's a risk there that then the advice can be discounted. But I think counsel needs to incorporate not just a litigation strategy or how to protect against a government investigation strategy, but an overall strategy that also recognizes there are other issues at play, including the corporate reputation. Thanks, Pat. Rachel, at times we're retained before the existence of the investigation is in the public domain. What are some of the factors that inform the decision as to when to make a public statement? One of the key things to know about crisis communications, and interestingly, I think this is counterintuitive, is that a company or an executive's reputation is made or broken based on how they react to the crisis, not to the crisis itself. So what we want to do is plan for all the possible scenarios that could surround a crisis becoming public. But we also have to recognize that not everything's going to become public or, for that matter, catch the interest of the media. And that's one of the things that has continued to surprise me throughout my career is 
Now you get so involved in a matter that you think, oh, this is going to be huge news. And then it isn't. And part of that is that while even though the pace of the news cycle is exponentially increasing, we used to talk about the 24-7 news cycle. It's even faster than that. At the same time, newsrooms are continuing to contract. For that reason, it's usually prudent to wait and see, but you do have to be prepared for any eventuality. So what we do is that we want to work hand in hand with a client's legal team, a company's legal team, to make sure that our communication strategy is aligned with the legal strategy and also with any disclosure requirements, because depending on the nature of the issue, that can be really important. And what we have found is that when a legal team understands and really believes that we're all on the same team, it's going to pave the way for the best possible results for our mutual client in the court of public opinion, which is incredibly important. How about you, Pat? So, Scott, one obvious consideration is whether there's a legal obligation to disclose, which can come up in the context of an SEC disclosure requirement of a public company. So in those circumstances, there's a bit of a trump card that says you need to start addressing this now. But I think lawyers have to be careful not to use legal trump cards that aren't real. In those circumstances, discretion is out of the client's hands. There may be practical considerations. You may be learning that the story is about to break in the news media, and the better course of action may well be to get out in front of it. And of course, if there's anything that would indicate that public health and safety may be jeopardized by a delay in an announcement, then that may well trump other considerations. But if there's no legal or practical requirement to disclose immediately, and you know the story is not about to break otherwise, it may often make sense for the team to take some time, get its arms around the most salient facts for the law when appropriate, and get organized about a plan of action before making an announcement. I say that very well aware that that instinct to take a little time to get your arms around the facts has to be balanced against the fact that often a key question that will be asked at the time of an eventual public disclosure is how long the company has known about it and why the company didn't act before. So taking a modest amount of time to get your facts straight makes sense, but it shouldn't become a de facto excuse to just ignore the issue of disclosure. And of course, the final announcement plan has to be closely coordinated with any notifications that are being made to public authorities or regulators. Well, thanks, Pat. So ethical culture, transparency, social responsibility, and accountability are are really baseline expectations and inform consumer, customer, media, and shareholder sentiment. By the same token, public comments can worsen public sentiment, ravage market cap, and undermine legal defense strategy. Is it possible to provide public comments in increments while the investigation is unfolding? And in other words, can you start with the, we're looking into it, we're horrified at what we've heard, and we'll devote considerable resources to getting to the bottom of this and report back with what we've learned. Yes, Scott, I think that makes sense. And I think the key here is whether and how any promise to report back is qualified. I think it's very dangerous, even though it's well-intentioned, to state or create the impression at the beginning that all new information be reported out real time. First of all, the company may be bombarded in a crisis with lots of new information. And some of it may entirely lack credibility, such as anonymous tips to a phone line that may well contradict known facts. And you don't want to be in a position where the client feels like, gee, this is crazy stuff. But someone points out, well, we promise to report you know, everything we learn. And the client doesn't want to commit to disseminating useless information or worse yet, spread disinformation. Secondly, there may be a whistleblower or witness who comes forward but says they're reluctant to speak for fear that they'll be outed as a whistleblower at that time. 
and they may insist on being assured confidentiality to the greatest extent possible before talking, even if they know eventually some of their information may become known down the road. And you don't want the client caught in a position where they promise to report out everything real time. And then they have someone coming forward with information that's critical who won't report it if they are going to report it out real time. So the company's promise to update should be qualified so as not to foreclose the ability to agree to appropriate confidentiality terms with the whistleblower, at least for a period of time, or to foreclose the company from putting a filter on information that it thinks may be disinformation. And of course, the real-time disclosure of facts may also make it hard to hinder the ability to gather new information in a situation where there's ongoing investigations. I remember when I worked in the government and we were investigating terrorist bombings in Africa, there was a false report that the bombs were delivered by a water truck to our embassy in Tanzania. But as people walked in with claims to know, knowing who did the bombing, and they said, it's my brother-in-law. He rented a water truck and said he was going to use it to bomb the embassy. You could scratch those people off the list because they had the facts wrong. So I think it's noble to say and to follow through that you intend to keep people apprised as much as possible, but you should caveat that with some disclaimers, including some restrictions there may be on sharing information. And I think you're much better off under-promising and then exceeding the promise than over-promising and having to walk back. To build on Pat's point, I mean, the reality is you, you just don't always have time to plan and game out every possible scenario, particularly in the event of a crisis breaking. And certainly from our perspective, as communications consultants, we love it when somebody brings us in before the news breaks, but we sometimes get a call when the house, either literal or figurative, is on fire. So you don't always have time to plan. However, when we do, our view is that your best defense is always going to be having a good offense. What we think companies should do is have a set of statements you can roll out and, of course, a crisis protocol that dictates how you use it that's going to allow you to respond quickly and focus on reiterating key values and core messages for your organization at the highest level before you go any deeper. So the way to think about that is, say you own a factory and there's an explosion at that factory. What happens? You've got a bunch of ambulances, fire trucks, news trucks outside of your plant. And so if you're the plant manager, your first instinct might be to go out front, put your hand in front of the camera, say no comment, and try to get them off your property. What does that look like to the public? Not a good look. Instead, what we want to do is have that plant manager, whoever that spokesperson is going to be, really be prepared for that. Know that they're not in a situation where they can comment on the facts, but what they can do is express empathy. So if there's a human toll, express empathy for any lives that have been impacted, communicate their company's commitment to safety because there has to be a safety message in that instance, and of course, swiftly convey that you're cooperating fully with the authorities in whatever the matter at hand is. In that scenario, as a company, you've said very little that materially addresses the crisis at hand, but you're in a much better position when it comes to public perception of your company because You've expressed empathy, you've expressed cooperation, as opposed to saying no comment, which the public perceives as guilt. What that also does is it's going to put the company in the driver's seat to communicate out at a future time when the company's ready, because you already have a little, you know, what I call money in the bank, you've said something, and so you are putting yourself in a position of cooperation rather than no comment. Well, thank you both. You guys both responded in a very detailed way about is it ever okay to respond in increments 
we're still getting up to speed. We're gathering the facts. This is a priority. How much time does that afford the investigators before the company has to provide an update? So, Scott, I think any promise to provide an update should be framed in terms of developments or milestones and not on a calendar basis. There may be crises. We see them where people do it on a periodic basis just to tell people there's nothing new to report. But I think that the messaging has to be that the client wishes to be as transparent as possible as soon as possible, but also has an obligation to make sure that they don't interfere with the ability of the investigators to do their work, whether you're talking about internal investigators or not stepping on the role of regulators. And the company also should make clear that it doesn't want to put out information before it's had a chance to verify it so that they don't end up causing misinformation and to make clear that they'll do updates as timely as they can, as long as it doesn't interfere with the investigation or maybe violate any legal considerations such as HIPAA or employee privacy rights, depending on the circumstance. And then the company then has to follow through and do that, do it as soon as reasonably possible. But you have to avoid promising that substantive updates will come on some sort of calendar timeframe. I completely agree with that because at the end of the day, you want to build in as much optionality as possible. Unlike what we see on TV, investigations can move slowly. And so you need to be able to cadence your communications around the reality of the situation. The other thing that is important to keep in mind is that, you know, there might be reporters or other public entities who are calling and asking questions. Just because they call doesn't mean a company always has to respond. They can be phishing. There are other things they do to try to get information when you're not ready for it. And so I always remember and remind people that different than what Pat's going to deal with in the legal world, an interview, it's not a deposition. It isn't confession. Reporters don't have subpoena power. The companies are really in the driver's seat much more than they perhaps feel they are when the reporters and the media are knocking at your door. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is how much the makings of a news story are actually happening behind the scenes. And so one of the key reasons that companies bring in communications consultants is because we can create that layer of insulation between a company and the media. We can work on background with the reporters, we provide them with information, and then we make recommendations to companies on the right way to engage with the reporter. And, you know, people often feel like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to do an interview or should I do an interview? Interviews are often the last line of defense because very often we're using written statements in times of a crisis. It's much more controlled, but we're still being cooperative and working with a reporter on background. That's where a lot of the secret sauce is. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we can't control what happens, but we can't control how we respond in the aftermath. And that is what is key to defining how a company is going to be perceived in the long run. Thanks, Rachel. So the topic of whistleblowers and victims is particularly sensitive. Unmasking whistleblowers or allegations of retaliation or disparaging victims are all terrible scenarios, which can really be catastrophic to a company's public image and, and shareholder confidence. So how do you counter whistleblower and victim allegations without looking like you're attacking them or their character? When I think about that question, the bottom line is that it's never good for Goliath to be seen attacking David. So that's one of the key principles I, I keep in mind. And from my perspective, there are a few rules of thumb that I'm going to think about in a whistleblower situation like this. Number one is that whenever possible, the corporate entity ought to take the high road. 
yes, you need to address the merits of the accusation, but I would leave the whistleblower out of it. Number two, always lead with empathy, or at least do that whenever it's possible. So if there's a human toll, and there are a lot of ways to define a human toll, that's not necessarily just loss of life or injury, as we think about in the traditional sense, but you see that in the Me Too movement and in a Me Too accusation. You really need to lead with empathy for the victim to have any credibility. And number three, I think this is so important, is getting diverse points of view on your approach in order to ensure that your response is going to be above reproach, at least to the extent you can control that, from multiple viewpoints. So what I mean by that, if you think again about the Me Too example, what you have to do is make sure you're not doing anything that appears to be victim blaming. And it can often be hard for a group of people who don't see the world through the eyes of the victim to understand the way they see it. So in the Me Too example, the reality is it can be hard for a group of men, no matter how well-intentioned they are, to see it through the eyes of a woman. So you need to be thinking about your response with a team of people who is diverse and represents the victim in this instance or, or the whistleblower's point of view. And similarly, if it's a case around race or another underrepresented group, a diverse team is really critical to ensuring that you're looking at the response strategy from all angles before making a misstep. So it's not a surefire thing, but it's really going to help make sure that you're responding in the most appropriate way possible. I couldn't agree with Rachel Moore. And obviously attacking whistleblower or victim is just a bad idea. One has to make sure that everyone on the client team is on board with this because sometimes they can be asked questions impromptu at different events. So you need to make sure everyone's on the same page. And in a situation where litigation may be involved, one has to be careful when one takes a position that may disagree with the position taken by a whistleblower or a victim. But there are ways to frame it that are not ad hominem attacks. So to say, we understand the fact to be X is much better than saying the whistleblower's claim or the witness's claim of Y is false. One, the facts may change and people may have differing recollections without being dishonest. And so just getting across the point that you will assert what you believe to be true without attacking people is key. And the press relations folks and the lawyers may understand this, but we need to make sure that no one makes an off-the-cuff remark that betrays that empathy and understanding. So not that long ago, it seemed inconceivable that a social media post could impact market capitalization and trigger an SEC investigation. In the past four years, social media has supplanted traditional media, both in terms of how people ingest their information and how executives and government leaders have been engaging with consumers, customers, citizens, and shareholders. How important is it to align an organization's social media policy and training with its corporate communications policy? This is absolutely critical. In fact, I'd argue that today it should be just one policy because there's very little delineation between traditional media and social media these days. That's why I operate by a really simple rule of thumb. If you don't wanna see something on the front page of the New York Times, don't post it on social media, don't do a TikTok dance about it, and certainly don't say it to a reporter. And also broaden the way you think about the term reporter. Everybody's a reporter these days. So what shows up on the internet or Instagram or any social channel is there forever. So you really have to think about this holistically and be very cautious about what you put in the outside world defined in the loosest of terms. Thanks, Rachel. So to follow that up, 
is it important to step up social media monitoring during and after a crisis? And how can that be accomplished without it seeming like the company is attempting to silence its own personnel? Scott, the reality is that the best practice today is actually to have what we call always on social media monitoring. And you see examples all the time of where that is not happening and it can lead to material impacts. And an example of where I think that failed recently, this is just a theory, was in the impact of the GameStop and the Robinhood stock run-up. It wasn't just GameStop. There were some other stocks involved. And I think it actually caught a lot of hedge funds by surprise because they weren't monitoring social channels adequately. All of a sudden, Reddit came on, on their radar screen and you know, they had to scramble to see what was being said out there because it was having a material impact on their businesses. But taking a step back from that particular example, you can monitor social media by watching what's in the public domain. That's the easy part. But even things that seem to be private can become public quickly. And that's what's changed. And I think we really saw that bubble up over the summer in the wake of George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor, and the rise of protests and awareness of the Black Lives Matter movement. When all of a sudden, what people said in Central Park or on social media, all of a sudden impacted their lives and jobs to detrimental and really, really extreme effects. So it's really part of it is just being aware of it as a private citizen and being very conscious of the way that information can spread. But also employees need to be aware of their company's policies when it comes to their online comments. And it's beyond just policy. It's also understanding how what you say can impact what clients perceive of you, what colleagues perceive of you. And at the same time, I think companies need to clearly delineate and communicate their policies long before a crisis hits. And as they say, they need to do that early and often, not just when events pop. And I think Rachel's analysis is spot on. I would note the law on reviewing social media, uh, particularly of employees, varies somewhat by state. But folks should be careful if, if they ever think about asking employees for their password or username information, because that may violate local state law, but that's separate from just monitoring what's put out there publicly. Thanks, Pat. So some categories of government and private sector investigations command so much media attention that they can cause the crisis communications playbook to go right out the window. In a situation when the media is reporting on the investigation on a daily basis and the public outrage is so great that the organization has no choice but to share findings in a less than optimal way, even if it risks undermining the investigation and the company's legal defenses. How can companies and their counsel thread the needle by yielding to public demand for information without completely blowing up the investigation and the process and the company's own defense strategy? So that's a great question. Lawyers always have to recognize that we have a playbook and it's usually pretty conservative. We want to win litigation and we want to avoid regulatory risk or God forbid indictment. And we have to also understand that a client has broader interests than just say what happens in a civil litigation, even though that may be important. And it can be entirely appropriate for a client to want to throw the standard approach out the window in a crisis and run some risk to protect against other risks. And it's entirely appropriate for outside counsel or a general counsel to go along with that approach. I think it is a lawyer's job to point out the potential negative consequences of a non-standard approach that may affect the litigation or regulatory outcome just to make sure the client is aware of those risks and makes a conscious decision that those risks are outweighed by other benefits. 
and often in crises, they are. So when the client decides that they need to bear the risk, send the lawyer's role to help the client do that the best way they can. And in many circumstances, uh, litigation will take a back seat to some extent, and the client will proceed with uh, the knowledge that they may aggravate that litigation risk. And I think the key part for the lawyer to get across to the client is that they are there to address the overall issue. And so by flagging litigation risk or other consequences, they're not trying to put up a legal trump card to say you can't do it. They just want to make sure that the client knows what the risks are and make a, an intelligent decision going forward. And as the lawyer, you want the client to understand you're addressing the larger picture because otherwise they're going to put you in a box and marginalize your input. If they instead understand that you are trying to be part of a team, working with a colleague like Rachel on the public relations front and with them to achieve a larger objective, then that's your role. And you have to help them throw the playbook out the window the best way possible and minimize the collateral damage. But that's what you have to do in a crisis. I have to say, Pat, I really wish more lawyers saw it the way you do. And from our perspective, we are generally trying to put the legal strategy first because we recognize the importance of it. But when we work with a legal team, like you would bring to the table, we all understand the bigger picture and we all know that we are one team trying to go in the same direction, then everybody wins. And just looking at our perspective from a communications team, our priority is we want to support the legal strategy. We don't want to subvert it or obstruct it. But as Pat mentioned and suggested, there's no one right way to handle a crisis that's in the public eye. And the landscape is changing on a regular basis. There's the boxing quote, everyone has a game plan until they get hit. That's so true in crisis communications. And that's why whenever the communications team has a seat at the table and is appropriately read into the situation, and I say appropriately on purpose because, you know, there are places where we know we can't always be read in or information that we don't need to know. But when we have the information that we need to do our jobs right and we're aligned as one team with the legal counsel, then we are able to partner together and do our best work on behalf of a client. Thanks, Rachel. You know, Pat, in talking about your background, it made me think of one of my favorite public meltdowns, your prosecution of Governor Blagojevich, who at one point just ill-advisedly was doing a, a media tour in the middle of his investigation. And one of the favorite one-liners I ever heard a late night TV host say is being introduced as a guest on David Letterman, Governor Blagojevich says, I've been wanting to be on your show in the worst way. And Letterman said, you are on my show in the worst way, which is kind of just a, just an absolute great one-liner that you can't walk back. No, it's toothpaste. Once it's out of the tube, you are not getting that back in. I don't know. That is just burned in my brain. And when we're talking about this subject, I always reflect on that moment. One thing, Scott, to what Rachel said. Sure. If you're in a board meeting with a lawyer there and a public relations advisor, you know it's working well if you're walking in either with a joint proposal that the press people and the legal people have both signed off on, or two versions that the press and legal people have tried to work through and they can't quite get there, but they're going to put up the menu for the board or management to decide, and they're going to flag the relative risks that are posed. But if you're walking in with a lawyer saying, here's what you shouldn't be doing, not having spoken to the press person or the press person walking in with a statement saying you need to be forward leaning, but hasn't spoken to the lawyer 
then that's a bad sign. Your lawyer and press person need to be working together, even if they don't ultimately agree, so that the board doesn't marginalize either one and they understand that there is a common goal. And a technical aspect of that is also we want to be retained by the outside counsel so that way we can have conversations under privilege because that's how we're going to get aligned and make sure that we can get on the same page in the best interest of the client. So with all of that in mind, should C-suite executives of public companies and litigation partners receive crisis communications and media training? I'm happy to jump in here. And in the interest of full disclosure, one of the many hats I wear is that I'm one of FTI's senior media trainers. So I have a lot to say and a lot of experience on this topic. And I've been lucky enough to train hundreds of executives all around the world, C-suites of companies that are household names to celebrities who are doing business deals. And so based on all that experience, here's what I can tell you. First and foremost, training is absolutely essential. And, you know, think about it. You would never appear in front of a judge without the training you get that begins in law school. So why would you ever speak to journalists without media training? And media training is a few hours rather than years and years. And this might sound harsh, but if you show up without training, there's a really good chance that reporter is going to absolutely destroy you. And uh, yeah, I say most of my clients spend a lot of time trying to avoid putting themselves in the career-limiting situation of speaking to a reporter. And we support that. But even just the exercise of going through the training is going to change the way you think about communications, the way you think about a reporter and your understanding of what their motivations are and how we can best operate with them. So the second thing that I'll say is that, unfortunately, for people who have been media trained, it has a lousy shelf life. Now, I say it's unfortunate. It's bad for the people who are not talking to reporters or doing media training for a living. Honestly, for me, it's job security because we need to keep on doing refreshers. But the reality is, you know, joking aside, that the people who interview the best are constantly practicing. The executives who I coach on a quarterly basis before their earnings calls so they can go on CNBC or whatever they're doing, even in a non-crisis scenario, they perform better after doing a quick refresher and a practice interview or two, they're going to do better doing the real thing than if they go on with no preparation. So media training is absolutely essential. And I agree. And I just add to what Rachel said, that the best training that will have the most impact is a real life case study where the person being trained has to walk through a series where they don't know what's coming and recognize what the tension is, make decisions and see how it plays out. I think that gives a person a, a little bit of an exercise where they they learn without having to go through a real crisis first. I would agree. I think just in, in a lot of areas, case studies in terms of how trainees retain information, it's it becomes so much more real and tangible if the case study corresponds to the role that the trainee performs. I think, you know, generally people are looking for reasons to disengage from training. And uh, the case study makes it harder for them to do that because they conclude that, wow, this is actually very relevant to me. And this is the kind of thing that actually could happen in the performance of my job. So I I need to pay attention. So those are, I couldn't agree more that case studies are really the way to go. Absolutely agree. And, And same thing with just big picture crisis preparedness, crisis scenarios, doing that on a regular basis when you are managing crises that are very real, very timely and could happen to your business makes a huge difference in your ability to be able to respond to a crisis in real time if it happens. So this has been great. You guys really brought a lot of insights to our listeners today. 
really appreciate both of you coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you, Scott. Much appreciated. That was Skadden Arps partner, Pat Fitzgerald, and FTI Senior Managing Director, Rachel Rosenblatt. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eats Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eats Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatsstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.